Hi, this is James Michael Brody, and this is Black and Gold. Think of these podcasts as a home away from home, um, a homecoming, if you will, as we share the accounts of African Americans who studied, taught, and worked on the University of Colorado's Boulder campus. And we have stories to tell, my friends. Stories of joys and sorrows, defeats and victories, (sighs) lessons learned, lives lived, our collective memories. You see, this is about way more than the time we all spent on a particular piece of real estate. Rather, these in-depth conversations will be the basis for the upcoming book, The Black and Gold Project. So kick back check it out, listen to these celebrations of life, and I hope that what you hear will spark some memories for you too, memories that you might one day share, because my friends, we are all black and golden. Lionel Lyles has come full circle. He grew up on a farm in Alexandria, Louisiana, where he discovered the wonderment of what good soil could produce. He still tends to his own modest garden with the same love and care. Born under Jim Crow in the Deep South, Lionel came of age during the Civil Rights Movement, inspired by icons such as Malcolm X, Mary McLeod Bethune, Medgar Evers, Fannie Lou Hamer, and Martin Luther King Jr., who was assassinated right before Lionel enrolled at Southern University in 1968. Lionel came to CU Boulder as a graduate student in geography and was among the first African-Americans to earn a doctorate in the field from the university. While there, he took an interest in the low numbers of black graduate and undergraduate students, and he rubbed elbows with such CU luminaries as black ELP director William Pitts, professors William King and Charles Nylon, and CU Chancellor Mary Frances Berry the only African-American to occupy that post. Over the course of a 40-year career, Dr. Lyles taught or worked as an administrator at the University of Northern Colorado, Morgan State University, and Southern. He collaborated on a NASA program to create a climate change report on the rising sea levels among the Louisiana Gulf Coast and he was among the first to warn about the potential damage a major storm could wreak. This just a few years before Hurricane Katrina devastated the region. His climate change research took him to Alaska, France, Uganda, Kenya, Tanzania, Ghana, Togo, and Auckland, New Zealand. Good soil. Please say hello to Lionel Lyles, Ph.D. How you doing, man? I'm doing good. Everything is working pretty well so far. I'm trying to get my garden started, but the weather is still not exactly what it needs to be. What kind of garden? It's going to be a raised bed garden, and I have a eight by six and a half feet greenhouse. 
And in my greenhouse, I have my seedlings that I started from seeds. And so I'm waiting. They are growing. I'm not losing time. And when the weather is good around Mother's Day, I can put them straight into the raised bed. That's, is that something you've been doing for a while, isn't it? It has stayed with me from my childhood. I grew up on a farm in Alexandria, Louisiana. My grandmother's name was Mary Prudhomme Jones. And Mary Prudhomme Jones was born on the Oakland Plantation on Cane River in Natchitoches Parish. In Natchitoches, Louisiana. And in Louisiana, as you know, they called the counties parishes. She was born there in 1895, and she had about eight or nine siblings, and she grew up on that plantation, and her people ended up being sharecroppers. And she left, got married to David Jones Sr., and they moved to Alexandria, Louisiana, and they bought a large farm. And that's where I came into the picture because my grandmother and grandfather had nine children, and my mother's name was Mary Elizabeth Jones, and she married Leonard Lyles, who came from Grambling, Louisiana, which is in the northern part of the state, near Shreveport, Louisiana, and interestingly, uh, they didn't get together in Louisiana. Uh, my mother left home after high school, and she went to Oakland, California, and she met my father, Leonard, in Oakland, California. And so that's where uh, I was born in uh, 1950. And so the, the way I got back to Louisiana was, unfortunately, my father passed away at an early age. Hmm. He was 34 years old. And my mother, Mary, she was devastated, obviously. But she was foresighted enough to say, well, you know, I'll take my two boys back to where I grew up on the farm until I get myself together and then uh, come back and get them. But as I grew up, started to grow through the years, started liking the farm, the chickens, the cows, the horses, learning how to plant vegetables. That's why I'm still doing it today. I think it's a really interesting process when you put a seed in the ground and then you watch it break through the surface and then see it actually end up on your table at some point. And you say, wow, this is really a good, a good fruit or a good lettuce or whatever. So that's my agricultural connection. I went to school public school in Alexandria, Louisiana, during the Jim Crow era. Now, and, let me stop you there. What uh-huh. do you, what, what are your memories of that era? How aware of you, were you, of what was going on there? Were you very aware, kind of aware? Did you have a sense of what was happening? Yes, I grew up in a household, and interestingly, my grandmother finished the third grade, but all of her children were college educated. And so she was adamant. I mean, she could read. She could do mathematics. She knew how to 
visualize how she wanted the farm to run. She kept all the books. And so there was an interaction with the white community at the time. And because she was a landowner, uh, they tended to have a not as aggressive um, attitude towards her estate and her children. But I knew from the general community there was a division. Mm -hmm. Uh, There were certain places that I couldn't even go to, like the movie. If I did go, I had to sit in a separate place in the movie, upstairs usually. Uh, I saw the white-only signs and the color-only signs. And so there were places we couldn't go to eat lunch. I did have one incident, which I think I came through it safely. I had an encounter with a a white man. I was picking pecans. I might have been 12 years old. And I mean, I had a bucket full of pecans and up up rode this white man on a big black horse. And you know how they had the uh, saddle holster with the rifle in it? And so he asked me to stand up, and I did. And he asked me to tell him who I was, and I did. I told him that I was the grandson of Mary Prudham Jones. And so when I told him that, that triggered in his mind something that some other white person must have told him about my grandmother and farm. And so he didn't harm me, but he told me to leave my pecans on the ground and just start walking and don't look back. I was very intimidated and I was scared because he could have easily just shot me down and that would have been nothing ever said or done about that. How did that make you feel? It made me feel that I really had to think about myself, about the community I was growing up in, and, and about my safety and why. White people felt the way they did about black people who had not really done them anything. It didn't make me, uh, I guess, quote, unquote, stay in my place. It motivated me to get out of my place and dig into that to try to figure out what was, what's, what's the deal and what was going on. Tell me a little bit about the schools. I'm assuming they were still segregated because you're talking that when you started, it was still before the Brown decision or roughly around the time of the Brown decision. What was schooling like for you in Louisiana? It was segregated. I went through K through 12 in a completely segregated environment. And all of my teachers were African-American teachers. They all lived in the community where I grew up. That was positive. Uh, They all had a very strong interest in my well-being and also in my education. And they knew that we weren't getting the exact same, quote-unquote, separate but equal facilities and, and books. But what we got was love from my teachers And that basically instilled and ingrained in me that my immediate surroundings did not have to determine completely uh, what I would do with my internal environment within myself. 
Mm. So um, it was segregated. Uh, we fortunately had some good teachers, and we had a good leader, and the principal that I was under in high school named, they called him Professor David F. Isle. And he was a very, very strong black man, a strong leader, well-spoken, very intelligent. And uh, he was what I needed at the time when I got to be in the 10th grade, someone who was telling me, you can go, all you got to do is work with your mind, all of the things around you telling you you're not good, but don't let those things define who you are. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the education Fortunately, I didn't ever recall any of my classmates or anybody being harmed. However, before my time, before I was born, in 1942, in Alexandria, Louisiana, there was an incident called the Lee Street Riot. The Lee Street Riot. And what happened, there was the Fort Polk. Is where a lot of African-American soldiers would be stationed for training as they were preparing to go off to World War II assignments. And on weekends, they would come to Alexandria to blow off some steam, you know, and have just be in the, in the downtown area of Alexandria and, you know, relaxing and doing whatever. And something occurred where some white policemen attacked some of the African-American soldiers, and I guess maybe 35 of them were killed in that incident Mm. on that particular weekend in 1942. So that's called the Lee Street Riot. And, you know, that had to be part of local lore, I'm thinking. Did they talk, did people talk about those things? You know, or was that sort of like, you know it, but you don't say much about it? Well, I came to learn about it, I guess, maybe even years after I graduated from high school because Mm -hmm. the local newspapers and the local colleges, in fact, there was a college in Pineville, which is right across the river, Mm -hmm. Alexander Pineville, considered to be Twin Cities, that's what they used to call them, and the whole administration of Louisiana College white folk were thrown out because they were trying to teach their students about the riot and what happened and the reactionary forces that wanted to keep it covered up. They moved those administrators out and brought in some of their more uh, conservative reactionary people. And so that kept the, the incident from being as widely understood and widely uh, discussed and even included in the curriculums during the time in, uh, you know, public school. Mm. So it wasn't well known. You had to do some research or you had to uh, know some people who had been alive at the time and who had relatives who came through it and passed down that information, you know. Now, Hollyoke, um, there's a cemetery there in Pineville. Apparently, that's where they buried the bodies. And again, you didn't know about this until later, correct? I mean, if that's where these gentlemen finally were, were put to rest, I guess. Right, right. I only found out about this 
in the, the way I found out about it was through the daughter of our principal, David F. Isles. Mm-hmm. Her name is Gwen Isles, and she brought this to my attention because she was a young woman at the time, teenager, or maybe a little older, and her father was involved in trying to do something to help the black or African-American community through this tough situation. And so she got firsthand information from her father. In fact, her father was even attacked by some of the uh, white police officers as a result, I mean, he didn't get injured seriously, but, you know, he was, in fact, attacked. And then as time passed, I got to know Gwen uh, more, and then she shared that story with me. And that's how I learned, I learned about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know. But overall, uh, my grandmother had set down a value system around education, and it was known, it was made known to me by the time I could understand who I was as a person, five, six years old, I'm going, you're going to college. This was Mm -hmm. already set in place. Mm -hmm. So everything I did was leading up to that inevitable situation of going on to higher education after I finished uh, high school. The high school that I attended, Peabody High School in Alexandria, Louisiana. It was like a junior college because of segregation. And we had so many things that we accomplished. We had so many talented individuals. You know, we had a first-rate choir. We had, I played in the band, the marching band and the concert band. My instrument was the trombone. Mm-hmm. And I became very good musician. In fact, our band leader, Claude Andrew, Mr. Claude Andrew, he didn't want us to play uh, the jazz and and the rock and things of that sort at the time. So we'd get in the, when he wouldn't be in the classroom or near, we'd get together and we'd start having a little jam session, you know? So, uh, but then somebody says, here comes uh, Mr. Andrews, and we start playing and go back to doing our our orchestra type, uh, you know, practice and so on. Nice. Yeah. So uh, it was it was segregated. A lot of black people had been had been hurt in and around Alexandria. I don't want to paint a picture of a, a utopia because things had happened before. And I'm sure, as during the time I was coming of age, it was happening, but I was kind of insulated based upon where I grew up mm. and who I grew up around. And the attention that they paid to me kept me focused. And, of course, you asked me how I felt. I was not happy of the fact that I'm going to one school, and I know I have a whole cohort of white peers who I don't even know today. And so we went through that experience and we don't even know each other. We didn't have any cultural exchange whatsoever. Hmm. Yeah. So, but then I learned, I learned a lot about me 
as a human being, I learned I got a lot of information about what does it mean to be a black person and that it's not a bad thing and that I'm as good as anybody, regardless of what their color was. And then, of course, the civil rights era was in full swing at the time as well. So I was looking at uh, Dr. Martin Luther King from a distance. I was checking out Malcolm X, and I'm liking what I'm hearing him say. So we had some people who were pushing for change. Mm-hmm. And I was right there hanging on every word that they were talking about. And I was motivated to to learn how I could become a contributor to that whole effort. You're coming of age during the civil rights era, as, as you tell me. You're, you're growing up in that era. And there's King and there's Malcolm, there's Medgar Evers. There's so Mary much Beth- going on. Mary Bethune Cookman and Fannie Lou Hamer. Yes. And you already knew you were going to college. When you got to that point, you know, you're starting college in 68, and you know, let's see your king is assassinated. There's all these things happening. You know, what was your focus, and, and was it easy to focus on college? Was it difficult to focus on college? Was there a context for you as you started college? Actually, that's a good question because by the time I walked across the stage to get my diploma in 1968 in May, uh, we had lost. Dr. King, and I remember him making his famous Vietnam speech at the Abyssinian Baptist Church where Adam Clayton Powell was the pastor at the time. Mm-hmm. And he was on April 4th, 1967. And basically he said, I can't in good conscience keep saying to black people in Mississippi and Alabama and Georgia and all over the United States to be nonviolent, and at the same time they're being drafted to go be violent against their brothers and sisters of color in another continent and in another country. And so within 12 months to the day he made that speech, he was assassinated. And so that was very very traumatic for me to learn that and also for my peers to learn that. So we weren't happy about it. And Malcolm, uh, really, when he was brought down in 1965, that was really hard because I really, really appreciated what Malcolm was saying and how he carried himself and I thought he had a good the focus on what needed to go forward. And so I brought with me that energy. Uh, James Baldwin said once, obviously I have, if I was bitter, someone asked him a question, are you bitter, James? And he said, if I was, or if I am bitter, I would certainly have a reason to be bitter based upon things that have happened in this country to me and to my people. So I wasn't bitter when I graduated, but I was inspired that there had to be something going on that I needed to find out so that I could somehow fill the void or step into some of those spaces and do some of the work based on whatever skill sets that I would develop going forward. So I left Alexandria, the cornfields and the cotton fields of the plant of our farm, 
and I grew up on a plantation. I don't want to not say mm-hmm. that. Willow Glen is the name of the town or the city, the suburbs of Alexandria. But it was actually my grandmother bought a farm, which was a part of the Willow Glen plantation. Hmm. And the reason she was able to do that at the time, you might be saying, well, how could your grandmother and your grandfather under Jim Crow get their hands on and purchase a large farm estate when the average black person can't get their hands on hardly anything. Mm -hmm. And the reason that was is because my grandmother and her mother and one of the relatives of the people, the Proudhon family, Joan Pierre Proudhon and Mm -hmm. Emmanuel Proudhon, and some of their male relatives interacted with my grandmother's mother, Catherine, And so out of that situation, in fact, the guy who, when I say interacted, his name was Ilson Prudhoe, Mm -hmm. got together with my grandmother's mother, and therefore my grandmother and eight others of her siblings came about. Mm-hmm. So the Prudhons who owned Oakland Plantation knew Tom Wells who owned the Willow Glen Plantation, mm-hmm. and that's how they were able to have a letter of introduction, should I say, to get the land purchase that they made. <laughs> You never know what it takes to make a little ducky quack. Those words were uttered to me decades ago by a down-home professor when I was in grad school. She was reflecting on how life can take unexpected turns and how those circumstances can lead to revelations and experiences that you, never in your wildest dreams, could have anticipated. Quack. Given the many restrictions we face these days, As we move toward a healthy resolution of the virus, many of us have discovered the power of technology in reaching across those barriers. Videos, websites, Zoom, and podcasts of every persuasion are blossoming all over the internet. Quack. So here we are. I too have joined the merry throng after decades of dipping my toe in the water, but not daring to swim. So now, As I walk to the deep end of the pool, I invite you to join me on my YouTube channel, Just Folks Conversations with Emma, where I will be featuring the conversations of some fascinating everyday folks. We may meet as strangers, but by the end of the program, you will have made a new friend. So quack, come on in. The water's fine. See you soon. By the time I got to uh, Southern University in 1968, uh, I went to Southern, and I guess an enrichment program. It was called 813 College, and it was an enrichment program where we got small class sizes, and every the general population had 
one book, we were reading three or four books. So everything we got was elevated, and the resources were compounded. So it was an experiment to see if that would make a difference in terms of what it is academically we would be able to produce. So I would arrive at Southern in 13 college, and I would say a revolution was taking place on Southern University's campus because as soon as I got into my dorm, I had a knock on my door, and I said, I wonder who could this be? And I was a fellow student in living in the dorm, East Hall, saying, come on, let's go. I said, go where? There's a protest. We're taking over the administration at Southern University, the students. So I said, wow, hmm. taking over the administration. So I put all my stuff down, and I got out, and I went to the area where the administrative building and all of that is located, was located. And sure enough, there were hundreds, there were hundreds, thousands of students protesting. They had shut down the administration. And for two weeks, I came to Southern to go to class, right? And for two weeks, there was no class. There was protest. And so that's how I landed at Southern University. And, of course, these protests went on for the next, off and on, for the next three years of the four years that I was at Southern University in one form or another. So... Uh, that was a defining moment for me because it said, look, you need to get really, really, really dug in and serious here and learn about why every, this protest is taking place and what's going on across the country and what's going on right here where I stand. And mm-hmm. so that shaped my consciousness as a black man, a growing Young, I was 18, 19 years old, and I was being shaped in many ways, and I was wide open for information. And so I dug in and I uh, read everybody who was had anything that was out there that was like Ralph Ellison, The Invisible Man, Native Son, Richard Wright, James Baldwin, uh, W.E.B. Du Bois. And I'm, you know, I'm reading. I'm just really sinking in and seeing the disparities and the legacy of the American slavery institution mm-hmm. and, and what that had done to our people and what that was had done to me in some ways that I had to check myself and see mm-hmm. how brainwashed am I, <laughs> <laughs> you know, because I don't live on an island. I mean, I was like, okay, maybe I got some of this stuff in me that I need to, uh, like uh, Curtis Mayfield, check out your mind. It's been with me all the time. And so uh, this is what I did. So Southern was a very important uh, milestone. I met a very powerful woman. Her name was Princess Bowen. My homeboys and girls would tease me and say, oh, you have found yourself a princess here at Southern <laughs> University. <laughs> and I say, yes. So how that all happened is my intent was to major in history. So I was in history 101. And Princess Bowen walked in and Dr. Roscoe Leonard introduced her and she was making a pitch about geography. 
And if anybody wanted to major in geography and leave history, and I'm listening, she said she would guarantee a fellowship at the end of four years of undergrad study at Southern University. And that sounded real good to me. And so I came to find out that there was a program, a national program called the Commission on African-American Geography. And the acronym was COMGA, C-O-M-G-A, Commission on African-American Geography. And there was a lot of finances in that program. And so I stepped into a stream, a live stream, of people, students who had studied under Francis Bowen, come through geography, and had gone on to get their doctoral degrees at places like Berkeley, University of California, Berkeley, UCLA, uh, Minnesota, Ohio State. And so I was just the latest model coming on board in 1968. So I got up and left history without a question. I did a double major there. I did geography, urban geography, and I then did a secondary education degree because I grew up in a household and there were four of my grandmother's siblings, my aunts, and they were all college educated and they all had education degrees. And so I would listen to them talk, and I would listen to how they would shape their arguments. And one had a degree in biology, another one had a degree in mathematics, and another one had a degree in civics and government. So I got a flavor of all of this information. So at Southern, I more or less defaulted into that. So I got another degree in education and then another degree in English. Because I felt like, now, if I'm going to do anything with any of these, I'm going to need to know how to write and improve upon my writing. And so I got a degree in English as well. And I stayed on the dean's list for four years. And uh, I had fun. Now, don't get me wrong. I went to the football games. Uh, Southern had one of the best and still does bands at the HBCU level or anywhere in America, in the world. And it's called the Human Jukebox. And their motto is often imitated but never duplicated. And when Southern University and Grambling State University would get together, because Grambling had a world-famed uh, marching band as well, because they had traveled mm-hmm. all through Africa, being invited when President Ralph Jones was the president of Grambling. So they would put on an astronomical show. It would be a treat. And so those things really strengthened me as a black, young, growing man coming of age. And so I said, wow, this is really good. These are good people. And they are showing me how, you know, they are able to take their skill sets and create. And so that Mm -hmm. motivated me. And then I had Princess Bowen looking over my shoulder and shaping me and getting me ready for the next level as well. And that next level came. And how did it happen to land you in Boulder, Colorado? Well, that's a good question. And the way it occurred, uh, toward the end of my fourth year, 
Francis Bowen said I had to declare three universities where I would like to attend graduate school. And so I chose the University of Minnesota. They had an outstanding geography program at that time. I chose the University of Colorado, Boulder, because they also had a very, very strong geography program, and the University of California, Berkeley. These were the top-tier programs in geography. And, of course, there wasn't a whole lot of African-American participation in any one of these programs. Mm -hmm. So CUMGA, the Commission on Afro-American Geography, was set up to see if they could get more participation and diversity into these programs. So I put my application together, and Princess Bowen sent them to the respective school. And I said to myself, the first one that contact me, that's where I'm going. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so whichever one comes first, I'm not going to say, well, I contacted two others, so let me see. I'll wait until. Uh, I didn't want. I didn't take that attitude. So I was doing student teaching at a local mm-hmm. high school in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and the principal called over the intercom, and my supervising teacher's name was a woman named Sandra Pollock. She said, "Go ahead to the." I was teaching the class and see what businesses in the office you need to take care of. I'll take the class on from here. So I went to the office, and on the phone was a professor from the University of Colorado Boulder Geography Department, and his name was Dr. Melvin Albaum. And he was a Jewish man. He had graduated from the Ohio State University. And so we spoke, and he said to me, Lionel, I have your application in front of me, and the committee has looked at it, and they have decided they are interested in you and asked me, directed me to contact you to see if you would like to come to the University of Colorado Boulder to study geography. And I was really trying to be cool, right? I was trying to be very... I guess professional about it. I didn't want to. I wanted to scream, <laughs> but I had to contain myself. And I said, "That is something I would really enjoy doing. I love geography, and I think I could make an impact." And so he laid out what was going to happen and when I would need to be at the geography department, September of 1972. And he said that all of my expenses would be paid for. This is getting really good now. Uh He said, your books will be paid for. He even went on to say, and we are going to give you a stipend every month. And I told him that uh, I was married, and he said, well, we'll have, we'll have, we got housing for you. We'll get you housing. That's not a problem. I said, yes, 
I would accept. And I asked him to put everything in writing that he just said to me on the telephone and send it to me, a hard copy. We didn't have email at the time or right. cell phones and things of that sort. Yeah, you, you and, couldn't Zoom or Skype that one. Huh? No, no. So he sent to me everything he said, just like he said it, on mm-hmm. the letterhead of the University of Colorado Boulder Department of Geography, Guggenheim Building, and so forth and so on, and what I would study and da-da-da-da-da-da-da. So when I got the letter, I called him back and said, I will be there. And so I graduated from Southern University in May of 1972, and then I spent uh, June, July, and August in Louisiana, and then in toward the end of August, I had all my things ready to go and launched and headed out to uh, the University of Colorado Boulder, and this is how this is how it happened. And this was your first time there, I'm assuming. What was your first day there like? You're also a graduate student. You're not an undergraduate. You, you've got, you know, something. You've already got some accomplishments behind you. Well, the first thing happened is I did not understand that I needed to acclimatize. I had studied about acclimatization in geography, but now I'm going through a real-life experience. So I came from near zero elevation to a mile high, and I didn't acclimatize. So when I got to Colorado Springs, I got the worst headache. I said, oh, my goodness, I never had a headache like this before. This feels different. <laughs> I mean, it just really knocked me off my feet. I just, I couldn't do anything. I was in the hotel room. I couldn't eat. I just laid in the bed, and I was out. And then after about an hour, maybe an hour and a half, you know, it was like I never had this headache at all. And I said, oh, I feel good. Now I'm starting to acclimatize. And then it dawned upon me, this is what was happening. I went through that. And as I got into Boulder, the one word that most of the professors in the Department of Geography were saying to me is this, this must be a culture shock for you because they recognized that there were not a whole lot of black people at the graduate level or undergraduate level at the university at that time. And so I listened to them, and I said, no, wait a minute. This is, this is really not a culture shock for me. And they were kind of get a puzzled look on their face, and they said, well, what do you mean? And I would say to them, I had been around for four years at least 10,000 black students. I was fully immersed in the African-American experience. And so I brought that with me, and my mentor, before I left, indicated to me, this is going to happen, and your mission must not be aborted because you must receive your doctoral degree 
to fulfill the purpose for which we've been working on for the last four years. By the time I got to Boulder, I was not in any way, and although I hadn't been around a whole lot of white people during my K through 12, etc., but I had such a good feeling coming out of my household in Alexandria because all of my people were educated. They were colleges. Mm -hmm. And so they had filled me up with a good self-reflection of who I am. And time I got to the department in Boulder, I said, no, I'm not really in culture shock. I'm here to learn and enjoy. And I started asking them questions. I said, well, what about you? Are you in shock about me being here? How, how, how does that go, you know? And then I had one one professor. He was really an interesting guy. His, he's deceased today. His name was Dr. Nicholas Helburn. His wife was Dr. Susie Helburn. And so I was there about a week and a half early. And so Dr. Helburn asked me, well, where are you staying? I said, well, I'm supposed to be staying in this housing unit, but it won't open for another week or a week and a half. He said, well, you know, you're welcome to come out to the commune. And I said, the commune? Okay. He told me where it is located, out near Longmont. So I drove out, and um there was a whole bunch of uh, white students out there and feeding the cows. I had grown up on the farm, so that was right in line with what they were doing, things and working in the garden. And I said, yeah, I like that. That looked interesting to me. It's not unfamiliar territory. Mm-hmm. So they gave me, Dr. Helburn gave me my living quarters, showed me where they were, and, you know, I just blended right in. So I was living on the commune a week and a half and talking to the white students and whoever else. I was talking to Dr. Nicholas Helburn about geography and the department. He was telling me what to look out for and things of this sort. So this is how I started my journey in Boulder at, uh, in 1972 in September. Hi, folks. Have you ever considered what a miracle occurred when you showed up on the planet? In all of creation, there is only one you. No matter how progressive science becomes, quantum physics included, a copy of you, a clone, biological or digital, is by definition not you, but a copy of you, the original. Countless events have occurred throughout the universe and eons of time to bring together the elements that have assembled as you. You are a miracle. And I invite you to tell your stories and to listen to others as we share on Facebook, YouTube, and Anchor Podcasts. Simply look for Just Folks Conversations with Emma. See you soon.
there weren't a whole lot of black students out there. When I got to the department, one black student named Lou Campbell, he was the first one to graduate with a doctoral degree in geography, and he had just graduated when I was walking into the department. So I was the second to ever attend or be enrolled in the geography department, working on a master's degree towards a doctoral degree. And uh, it, wasn't some, it wasn't a deal breaker. I just had to continue to understand and be focused. And I didn't have a hard time interacting. There were quite a few Hispanics. And so I came in touch with uh, a good friend. His name is Roberto Cordova. And he came to the university at the same time as I did, but he was studying Spanish. We were living near each other, and we became very close friends. I got to immerse into the Hispanic culture, and I also, there were anybody out there that was black. At the university, I, I came in touch with uh, Dr. Bill Pitt, the uh, black student, EEOP. So I would go by his office quite a bit and hang out, talk to him, and he's smoking his pipe. And we, we'd, have, we'd go to lunch, and we'd be talking about issues and things of that sort, about uh, what's going on on the Boulder campus. And his focus was the undergrad, and, and I was learning about the undergrad situation as, and, uh, you know, being at the graduate level, you know. So uh, that was very supportive and helpful. And then I met some other African Americans, uh, got to become a very close friend with a young man named Stokes Hill. Uh, he was an XCU football player who was a little too intelligent to continue playing football because he enrolled and he got his master's degree out there while I was working on my master's and doctoral degree. So we, we spent a lot of time together and did a lot of things together. So, <clears throat> so I had African Americans strategically in my life as few as they there were time on the campus. Uh, I don't recall any, I guess, I don't recall any racist um, activity mm -hmm. that was directed at me while I was out there. I'm not saying it didn't exist or it wasn't going on. Maybe I just didn't pick it up, <laughs> you know? <laughs> So you had a march in with you. Yeah. You were on a mission up there, so yeah. you had to be focused. Right, right. So, um, but yeah, the only thing that I can recall that would even come close to that was when I finished my master's degree. Uh, the department chairperson was a very conservative fellow. His name mm -hmm. was Dr. John Leffler. He wore a bow tie. Hmm. <laughs> so he called me into his office I said I wonder what Dr. Leffler wants with me So I came into his office one day After I graduated with my master's He said congratulations I said thank you And he went on to say I have a letter for you And he was sitting right there on his desk And he said this is from uh, Fort Valley State University uh, HBCU in Georgia And I said uh, And so what, what do they want 
with me. He said, oh, you have a job already offered to you. All you have to do is go to that university and take that job. And I said, really? But then I also said, is this a way of them saying to me, I think this is an easy way to get Lionel out of the picture so he wouldn't, he wouldn't go on to request participation in a doctoral program. And so I immediately picked that up because that's what their underlying intent was, was to use that job offer as a way for me to do an immediate gratification thing and then forego. Leave. And then leave. And leave. And so I said, no, I'm not going to accept that offer. I'm going to reapply for the doctoral program. And I did. And, of course, I got accepted, as I knew I would. But if I had been short-sighted, I would have missed the opportunity of actually getting that additional training behind me. Now, once I got to the doctoral level, you know, things became a little more interesting in the sense that one of my professors, his name was Theodore Myers, and he's deceased today. He lost mm-hmm. his life in an accident coming out of Boulder Canyon, his Jeep. I don't know the circumstances, but it rolled into the canyon and he lost his life. Oh, wow. This was years later <clears throat> after I had graduated. But the incident that I recall, and I use it quite a bit today, And when I was writing my first three chapters of my dissertation, I had to submit them to him. And he left a note in my mailbox that he would like to see me about his review. And I said, wow, okay. So when I got back to his office and he started his review, I saw a lot of red ink on my paper. So writing-wise, I was like, I started feeling some, some heat building up in my gut, in my stomach. And I said, you know, here it is, a situation, a white guy on the other side of the desk. I'm a black student on this side of the desk. And, and now he's going to use this as a method of intimidating me, and blah, 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 blah. So at first I was almost to go there, but my second voice said, Listen, listen, listen to him. See what he is saying. Maybe he is saying something that I can gain from. And as it turned out, the red ink was showing me some of the secrets of writing. Because he could have given me my paperback with no red marks on it. And later on down the road, it would come back to haunt me. But he pointed out, Theodore Myers did, some of the subtleties of making the point clear and making it in different ways and, you know, strengthening the delivery. So I took the comments, I brought them back, and I went through page by page, comment by comment, and I incorporated each one of them into my toolbox, and it made me a better writer. I thought that was going to be something that they were going to, he was going to push at me, but this was for the positive outcome. Hmm. Now, there was another experience with uh, Dr. Theodore Myers. 
This was the highest class number that you could take. It was like a 799. And he said, everybody in this class is going, it's a historical geography course. He said, everybody's going to do a project and everybody is going to make a two-hour presentation and nobody should ever use the word ah, uh, uh, you know, ah, uh, and ah. Uh. You can't do that. This will be highly penalized if you use that one time. Whoa. So he was teaching us to be fluid and seamless in our delivery, and our information had to be well-documented, and it had to flow from one point to another to make the final point and reach a conclusion. And then he said, at the end of the course, we're going to have a gathering at my house, and I will have prepared a meal for everyone, and then I will announce who came through as the number one student in this course. And I said, well, that's fair enough to me. <laughs> hmm. So I said about doing, doing what I needed to do. I made my presentation, and I was... I was on. I was on top of my situation. And sure enough, there were others who came through, and they did a good job as well. And so at the end of the course, we went to his home. We had a dinner, and he did make the announcement. And he announced that the student who surfaced as the number one student in his course was me. Wow. Congratulations. He, yeah. And when he said that, I looked around the table and I could see in the faces of some of my peers. And rightly so, they thought it was going to be them selected. But I had been sent on a mission from Southern University, Francis Bowen. I had been sent on a mission from Peabody High School, Dr. Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, Fannie Lou Hamer, and so forth and so on. And, you know, the Vietnam War was going on big time at that time. So I was that wasn't lost on me at all. And so by the time this was announced by Dr. Myers, I felt like I was on schedule to do, continue to do what I was out here to get accomplished. So, yeah, well, Boulder was... Within that context, I went in and I got the skills that I needed to get from it. It wasn't the best place. It wasn't as diverse as it would have needed to be. I mean, school like that, you know, needed to have maybe at least five or 6,000 black students on the campus or more, but it wasn't that way. And at the same time, I, I didn't let that get me down because, as mm -hmm. I said earlier, I had just come from Southern University, and I had been around so many black students, and everything I did was directly, indirectly connected to black students. <laughs>
Hi, folks. Have you ever considered what a miracle occurred when you showed up on the planet? In all of creation, there is only one you. No matter how progressive science becomes, quantum physics included, a copy of you, a clone, biological or digital, is by definition not you, but a copy of you, the original. Countless events have occurred throughout the universe and eons of time to bring together the elements that have assembled as you. You are a miracle. And I invite you to tell your stories and to listen to others as we share on Facebook, YouTube, and Anchor Podcasts. Simply look for Just Folks Conversations with Emma. See you soon. Now, during your time in Boulder, you also came in contact with the university's first and only African-American chancellor. Correct. And, of course, you're talking about Dr. Mary Frances Berry. Talk about your relationship with her. Talk about that experience. Yes, that was. I'm glad you brought her up because she, at the time that she came to the university, I think it might have been 70, was it 76? 76, 76. 76. I had just finished up my master's program and just touching off into my doctoral program. And when she came to the university, I was very, very excited. Mary Frances Berry. I mean, it was a big deal. A lot was said about her. And I said, you know what? I need to meet Mary Frances Berry. I mean, at the time, she was a young woman, very smart, very articulate, very professional and very unafraid and very assured of who she is and what she was there as the chancellor to do. And so I came over to her office and I asked to have a meeting with her and we had a meeting and she was very, very open-minded and we spoke about what I was doing in graduate school and I talked about some of the inequalities with her in terms of the numbers of graduate students and diversity. And she said she wanted to do and make some changes. Uh, she mentioned salaries for African-American faculty. Mm-hmm. There was a gap. And she wanted to bring that gap and close it. And so she was talking my language, and I was talking her language. And so we became very good friends. In fact, any time I wanted to come to her office, I didn't really need to have an appointment. All I needed to do was show up. And Mm. her office manager was, you know, we just became 
very on a first name basis. Oh yeah, Lionel is here. We say, oh yeah, just tell him to wait a minute. I'll we'll get together in just a minute. So we had that kind of relationship. Mm-hmm. And then I said to Mary, I said, I'm into doing a lot of computer work, and I think I could help with the faculty uh, inequity project that you need. And so she said, tell me some more. And I said, what I'm going to do is I have computer programming experience, and I'm going to take every faculty by salary, by department, by school, by education, and I'm going to do a computer analysis to show where the disparities exist demographically across the campus. And she said, you can do that? I said, yes. So she hired me. (laughs) She hired me not as a university employee, but she contracted me, and I was compensated, and I did the study, and I hand-delivered it to her, and she used it, and she made some changes. She brought some some African-American faculty salaries in line with their white faculty peers in different departments around the university. So she was a good she was a good addition and I felt good by the fact that she was there. And she was well respected. Even if you didn't like her, and I'm sure there were some folk out there at the time who didn't, but she was very strong on her feet and she knew how to express herself and she had the information to do just that. Yes, she was the first and only chancellor and to be named the chancellor, she had to definitely be on top of her skill set. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she was. Was Boulder ready for her, in your opinion? As liberal as Boulder would have thought itself to be, I don't believe that they were ready for her. I just believe that they couldn't find a way, Boulder couldn't find a way to not hire her or find a way to relieve her of her position. And when she did leave, I thought she would have done so much to break down a lot more doors that were closed if, you know, she had stayed. Mm. And, of course, she was taken out, I think, by the Jimmy Carter administration. Right, who hired her to oversee education. Because she was so much, she was in demand. I mean, she was, so no, Boulder wasn't, Boulder wasn't necessarily ready and if she had not been picked up by the Carter, Jimmy Carter administration, she was going to shake up the situation a lot more than she actually did in the short time that she was at the university. The two of you ironically left the university about the same time. She left in uh, May of 77, and you finished your, your doctorate in 77. We know where she went. Where did, what did you do after that? <laughs> Oh, I was set on a course. I left 
in uh, August of 77, and I had a full-time job already offered to me when I walked across the stage at the University of Northern Colorado in Greeley as an assistant professor, teaching both undergrad courses and also graduate-level courses. And so I did that as my first university-level appointment, and I stayed in that position for a year. But while I was on the Boulder campus before I graduated, there was another black student in the administration program called Joseph Johnson. I don't know if you remember him. No, sir. Okay, so Joseph Johnson and I were close friends. He was studying for his doctorate in higher education administration. And when Ralph Jones retired at Grambling in 1977-78, then Joseph Johnson was selected to fill his that position. And so Joseph Johnson contacted myself and also my wife, Marjorie, because Marjorie knew the vice president of financial affairs, of business affairs. And so they wanted us to come to Grambling to work. And they gave us both, they offered us both job opportunities. I was working in planning, university planning, and she was working in accounting. So my intention was to not ever leave Colorado. Can you believe that? You fell in love with the place. I was not supposed to ever leave the Rocky Mountains, but I have family in Grambling, as I said earlier. So we decided to pull up roots and come down to Grambling to work. And then after Grambling, I found out the town was so small, and I was just 27 years old when I graduated out of the doctoral program, that we decided through some work that I was doing with planning at Grambling with another researcher who worked in D.C. at the Institute for Services to Education called ISE, Dr. Joe Naraba Rocha, a Nigerian who had graduated from Harvard University, and he was very, very, very intelligent and a very good writer. He took a job at Morgan State University, and Dr. Andrew Billingsley offered him vice president of planning position. And so Joel and I had a good relationship, and he liked what I was doing at Grambling. And he called me and said, would you like to come to Marvin to work with me in the planning department? And I said, to do what? And so he said, I would like for you to be the director of university evaluation. I want you to do what you did for Mary Berry at the University of Colorado. <laughs> you know, study, study faculty and equities, uh, how to get curriculum stronger, uh, what kinds of outdated evaluation practices that have been in existence, and then how can we modernize the university? And I said, okay. So I left Rambling and came up to uh, Morgan State and uh, there for three years, which was a 
great experiences. And what came next for you? Well, uh, what came next, I did some work in Louisiana. I went back home, and I actually taught public school hmm. for about 10 years. Really? Yeah. I taught public school. I said, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna try my hand at teaching, and I was really teaching myself how to write because I took a position in the English department, and so I did that for a number of years. And I said, if I can teach a seventh grader how to write, then I can certainly say I understand how to write. Because you got to break it all the way down to a 12-year-old and understand how to express him or herself on paper. So I had students in the seventh grade writing 20, averaging 20 to 25-page papers. And that was very good for them and also for me to see them do that. When I left there, the reason I left is I went to work in the criminal justice system in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, at the Maximum Secure Care Facility for Juvenile. Hmm. It's called the Jetson Correctional Center for Youth. The reason I went there is one of my college roommates had worked himself up to become the deputy secretary of adult corrections, and his name was today, he's Reverend Larry Smith. Through his influence and another grant writer who was successful, Dr. Cecile Buin, put together a $1.3 million rehabilitation grant, which was to provide certain continuum of care services in the, from social work, family development, job training, aftercare. And as a result, we were able to get from 1993 to 1996 around 200 inmates out of prison on early release. That simply means they worked the program that we had for rehabilitation and their sentencing of judge to give them an early release to go home on probation and work an aftercare program. And some of the aftercare programs meant they could go to college. We put some of these individuals in college. Some of the smartest hmm. students I've ever met I met him in prison. Uh, that was an experience in, by 1996, and then I went on to work with a all-boys academy called the Young Leaders Academy of Baton Rouge. I was working with the third grade unit, uh, teaching them leadership skills, critical thinking skills, and I think that's one of the things that's affecting the African-American community today is because we do not have enough leadership and critical thinking skills being taught to African-Americans at a tender, young age so that when they do encounter law enforcement officials, they will have a critical thinking process mm -hmm. That what one keep them from a negative encounter in the first place, and two, if they are in making an encounter, 
They will know how to think themselves through it. Coping mechanisms. Yeah, so I did that for a year, 1997, and then I went home to Southern University where it all started in 1968. I returned as an assistant professor teaching geography and also courses in what is called geographical information systems, GIS, GPS. In other words, this was just coming into vogue at the time. Google Earth, remote sensing. And so one of the interesting things when I went back, I I knew the students needed to have more technology and that I didn't really need to teach them every day and that they needed to have an opportunity to go into a laboratory and do research. So I was elected, selected to go to John C. Stennis Space Center in Hancock, Mississippi. Mm-hmm. And at the time, they were, this is where the rocket booster, the rocket engines, for the space shuttle were produced. And there were three besides me from Southern University. We were brought into what they called the Earth Science Division, where we were trained on remote sensing so that we would know how to uh, read map from satellite technology. And so, in other words, infrared and you see various colors, the infrared spectrum, what do all of these mean in terms of what is on the ground? How does the sunlight reflect those? And how do you read that? And so I did this work in 2001, 2002, and on the way out the door, NASA gave us a request for a proposal and said, look at this if you want to respond and let us know. So we went back to Southern University to put our heads together, and we submitted a proposal, and it was called Coastal Zone Assessment and Remote Sensing. And the acronym was CESAR, and my component was dealing with land use, and vegetation change. In other words, sea level rise, Louisiana's coast is sinking and eroding. Right now, Louisiana's losing as much as a football field of land every so many days in a month because of the channeling that huge oil companies have to cut into the coast so they could float rigs, oil drilling rigs, out into the Gulf of Mexico. So you can't bring those big rigs on the highway because they're too big. So you got to float them through the marsh. But at the same time, you're destroying the marsh because saltwater intrudes into the channels and kills the natural freshwater vegetation, and it dies. And when you combine that with the oil spill they had out there a few years, about a decade ago. Yeah. BP, that was that still has not been resolved. There's still some impacts on that. It may take a century to get some rebalancing going on because the only thing that happened when the oil surfaced to the surface, there's some chemical 
that is sprayed onto the oil, and it breaks it into smaller particles and allows it to float down to the bottom of the Gulf of Mexico. And so that's where all this oil is laying. And it's not helping anything. It's just sitting there, and it's probably not doing much good to the surface. Right. Absolutely. It's destroying habitats in there, the plankton and all the rest of that. Right. The food chain is impacted. So we were able to get successfully $6.3 million grant from NASA, mm-hmm. which set us on a worldwide exploration and research. Starting at Southern University, we built the students a research lab, first class. So all I had to do was teach a little theory and then give them the practical assignments to go collect mm-hmm. data and go to the lab and map it and write up the report. And then we were able to go outdoors and do a lot of research on coastal erosion, sea level rise. And also we went as far to go to Alaska, to the Bering Glacier, which mm-hmm. is the largest frozen ice mass on the North American continent. I understand you also went to France, Uganda, Kenya, uh, New Zealand, uh, yes. Togo, Benin. You went to a, you did a lot of research and you went to a lot of places to, to gather data. Were you satisfied with the results? At the time, I was definitely satisfied at what I was learning and what we, our conclusion that we came up with. But the old adage, out of sight, out of mind, where we submitted our results, but because of the momentum of the conservative republicanism and so on, they really did not want to stop certain practices. Mm. So rather than stop certain practices, we could go ahead and have, a, have another Hurricane Katrina because, see, we had started doing this research in 2003. So we offered the powers that be our results and said that, for instance, New Orleans is vulnerable because the coastal vegetation is dying quicker and the coast is eroding. And so storm surge doesn't have anything to put a friction or drag on it. And so coming out of the Gulf, you can have a powerful surge which can threaten to destroy New Orleans. And then it happened. It happened, but we said it could happen in 2000, at the end of 2003. You say, were we happy with it? Was I happy with the result? We were saying this is going to happen. And we made presentations to that effect. This is Mm -hmm. possible. And so two years later, it did. It actually occurred. Let me ask you this. Are there times when you're concerned that the work you're doing and the things you're discovering are falling on deaf ears, are falling on folks who are choosing not to heed the warnings, not to heed the advice? Oh, yes. It's, it's a 
it's a big concern, and it's a it's a concern across the board, environmentally, politically, economically, that the things that could help bring more balance to vegetation, to wildlife, to the ecosystems, but we have to change and do things differently to protect the earth. And the atmosphere, climate change is real. And so, as you already know, there's a certain group of politicians who don't even believe climate change exists. Mm-hmm. It's a hope, like the coronavirus. It's, oh, no, this doesn't exist. This is a hope. Talk about where we are. We, we know what's going on the last year, maybe year and a half, really. What are your takeaways as to where we are and how we got here? Well, uh, where we are is my son published a jazz CD recently, and he called it At the Precipice. So we're at the precipice socially um, because uh, we, when I say we, the policymakers, the politicians, they have an interesting anti-science mindset. And it doesn't always have to be science. It's just, in some instances, common sense that we need to switch courses and do this differently. So we are experiencing social and economic decay very, very rapidly. And unfortunately, this is coming around the situation where it's kind of like blinders. Some folk are saying, I want more and more and more without considering what more and more is going to do in the way of creating an unstable community. It's it's a very big concern that we don't have, and, and I'm sure we have voices out here on the ground at the grassroots level, but these voices are not heard, and they are not taken into consideration, and as a result, things get worse. And as they get worse, then we have, for instance, 45 mass shootings in America since the incident that occurred in Atlanta, Georgia, with that one on March 22nd. My final question to you. If you're talking to that 18-year-old version of yourself and he's right now 18, ready to go to college, what, do you, what advice do you give him going forward? I will simply say pay less attention to the distraction because technology has escalated so tremendously that 24-7 there is something competing for your brain cells, and you have to be the master of your mind, mm-hmm. because if you're not, someone wants to take your mind and gain mastery over it and you. So go to college with a laser focus and be a person who will balance science 
with the humanity, the humanities. Take some classes in humanity. Take some classes that's going to expand your empathy and compassion so that you can be a broader person when you start making policy at no matter what level you're going to be making it on. And then finally, just listen, because I find a lot of 18-year-olds, and I was like that when I was 18, I had to have someone, I had to have a princess to say, now, wait a minute, I am the professor. I'm, I'm 50 years old. You're 18. You haven't lived long enough to know what it is that I'm about to say to you. So before you resist me, hear me. And then think about what I just said. And then discuss with me how you feel so that you, 18-year-old, can talk yourself out of your misunderstanding. See, that's what education is supposed Mm. to be. If I listen, I can ask the right question and talk myself out of my misunderstanding. And so it is. Thank you for listening to Black and Gold on Anchor. Black and Gold is a production of the Black and Gold Project, Our Legacy. You can reach us on our Facebook site, or if you'd like to be involved, maybe in a future conversation, reach out to us at boulderblackandgold at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening. Remember, we are all truly golden. I love you.